Next Chapter Podcasts. In a world where even the most basic facts seem up for debate, it's comforting to find a few things that we can all accept as universally true. Beyonce is good. Supreme shirts are bad. What? What? This is Indecent, the show where we peel back the wallpaper of polite society, and nine episodes into our journey, the more we follow the clues, the less it seems like we can all agree on anything. But like, how are people supposed to find common ground when some of us aren't even living in the same goddamn reality? That was my big takeaway from our last episode where we talked to political commentators, Jesse Dollimore and Brittany Page about escaping their extremist upbringings. If you can have your electorate less worried about their own economic station in life and how well they're they're providing for themselves and their families and have been more interested in the Barbie movie or whether or not a football player kneels silently and peacefully for the national anthem, you've, you've got them. Now they're distracted. Now they're not focusing on the real issues that could materially change their lives. They're focused on the dumb shit that the dumb fucks in Washington insist that they focus on. One thing I know for sure though, America loves blood and guts. According to one survey, true crime shows made up 20% of the top podcasts in 2021. Now, the idea that this is the fascination of women, especially white women, is something that has fueled plenty of op-ed pieces and really shitty stand-up. But is it accurate? If we take a closer look, it's pretty easy to see that true crime's been around for a long fucking time. Any 90s kids who can remember their parents glued to the OJ trial know that true crime predates the first iPod drop. But perhaps the first real example of true crime comes from way back in 17th century China, where there was a collection of stories called The Book of Swindles, which warned merchants against potential scams. Ah, to defraud is to be human, but to write about it and profit off that fraud is divine. Lord, it's a miracle! Songs about both real and fake criminals have been hugely popular worldwide, from the Corridos of Mexico to medieval French execution songs. It might seem weird, but songs were important sources of news way back when most people didn't know how to fucking read. Even before newspapers, back in 16th century Britain, there were hundreds of pamphlets, broadsheets, and other periodicals covering everything from muggings to murder. And some of these stories pushed moral messages while others sensationalized the crimes to drive up readership. An early form of TMZ, if you will. Since modern police forces didn't exist until the 19th century, this means that true crime has been around longer than cops. In fact, Fuckery from the Boys in Blue is a shockingly common takeaway from stories about serial killers. This includes the LAPD basically covering for the Black Dahlia killer, and also the time that cops nearly saved one of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims, but decided quote unquote, nothing stood out about a grown man calling a naked 14 year old covered in blood his drunk lover. I'm sorry, what? The 1960s marked the emergence of modern true crime. Two books helped define the genre and are still the best-selling true crime books of all time. Truman Capote's In Cold Blood chronicles a real murder of a family in Kansas. Then there's Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter about the Manson family murders. In Cold Blood covers not just the murders themselves, but the psychology of the killers, victims, and community. It was a little loosey-goosey on the whole true part of true crime. Helter Skelter, however, stuck more to the facts. 
And that delicate balancing act between selling the sexy, spooky bits and telling the sometimes tragic truth is still a huge part of true crime today. There are other ways reality and fantasy can overlap when it comes to crime content. One bizarre example involves a fictional detective named Inspector Boney. Good day, mate. Yes, really, that was Australia's answer to Sherlock Holmes. In 1929, Arthur Upfield, author of The Boney Books, was writing his latest novel, and in it, the killer had perfected a real-world technique for making bodies disappear without a trace. Not a bad hook, right? Well, one of Upfield's buddies took the idea one step too far and used it to get rid of the three men that he murdered. Uh oh Now, the only reason he was eventually caught is he messed up some of the steps in Upfield's method. Men really can't follow directions. I swear to God, the reason we don't see more female killers isn't because they're not happening, it's probably because women are just better at getting away with it. We're very good at cleaning up bloody messes. We do it every month. <laughs> In more recent times, the prevalence of true crime has given everyday people not just an obsession, but a hobby, like a real connection to these grisly stories, even while they're still unfolding. Remember the University of Idaho killing earlier this year? Well, it sparked a torrent of online speculation and internet sleuthing. During the several months that police were investigating, there were threads of self-appointed experts dissecting every new detail and often throwing in harmful and completely false speculation of their own as if they were actual experts. There was even speculation that the man who was eventually arrested for the killings, Brian Kohlberger, was posting on Reddit spreading misinformation and trying to cover his own tracks. Another really disturbing thing that happened during this investigation, there was a TikToker named Ashley Solves Mysteries. She's now being sued by a professor at the school after she repeatedly accused this professor of doing the killings with zero evidence. There's real world consequences when we decide we can all be unlicensed private eyes. Don't believe everything you see on TikTok, folks. But that's where we are. Murder, death, and the CSI blacklight showing us where all the jizz and gore stains are. This is what the people want. These are the things that interest human beings, regardless of time period or gender. <gasps> Although, I will say, tons of research shows that women really do eat that shit up, especially Latinas. It's not just white women, apparently. But the modern true crime industry is just that. It's a money-making machine that, for better or for worse, is built on things that shock and appall. So what's the impact of highlighting and potentially glorifying the monsters committing these atrocities? As much as a documentary or investigation reveals their crimes, doesn't it also immortalize them in their ever-growing Netflix queue of cannibal rapists and child murderers that we now know by name? I know these names better than I know my own grandmothers. Today we'll be talking about whether or not it's ethical to make a killing in true crime. Joining us to give us the facts, just the facts, is Dr. Amanda Vickery, chair of Illinois Wesleyan University's Department of Psychology, where she teaches courses on crime, the justice system, social psychology, and gender. She's written for The Atlantic and has appeared on NPR to discuss her work. We're so excited to have her here to talk with us about our endless need to hear about people being hacked up into tiny little pieces. Amanda, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you, you know, I, like I told you before we start recording, like I'm not a true crime fan. Um, I think it has something to do with I used to work in news and you see bloodshed all the time. And for me, there isn't anything to celebrate there. And, and sometimes true crime feels like it's it's celebrating, like it's glorifying, like it's murder for entertainment, you know? And I think a lot of times it it absolutely is. And I've been I've been in debates about that. And I have mixed feelings as well. Um 
you know, this, this Idaho murder case happens and everyone, including myself is on the internet and on Reddit, you know, following it step by step and people are making money off it. Right. News stations are getting ratings from it, but like four innocent college students died. It's horrible. And that is our entertainment. And I think it's really, really tricky because I think true crime can do some really good stuff with unsolved cases finding John and Jane Doe's, the wrongful convictions, the flaws in the justice system. And sometimes victims want their stories heard. They want to talk about it. Or they want to talk about their loved one that was murdered um, and have that person be remembered. So there's really good stuff. And then there's stuff that just feels a lot more exploitative. Yeah. So what do you think the difference is? Because, you know, I'm less worried about like a like a serial killer coming to my house and killing me. I'm more worried about like a mass shooting. And those tend to be white men, too. Um, why, why isn't it the same fascination with mass shooters? Like, I don't think I can even name the last guy that did a mass shooting. Um, and those are a lot more common and that's a very real fear. That is a good question because if I, I don't know the statistics, I mean, bulls are very rare, right? Being killed by a serial killer and dying in a mass shooting. Maybe there's just more of a horror scary element you know who did it right away they're usually captured right then and there or killed you're missing the mystery element you know the clues the forensics and maybe there's a difference in how people feel they can prevent it um so i guess i feel like if i'm not out walking by myself at night maybe i can prevent being kidnapped i mean it's not true people are kidnapped in broad daylight if someone's going to come in and shoot up somewhere I'm at, what can I do? Well, and also I feel like nobody's ever surprised by the people that become mass shooters. It's like, oh, he was a lone wolf. He tweeted about it. He had a manifesto. Is that also true for serial killers or true crime? That's a good point because I feel like most of the time when you see these Dateline shows or whatever it may be, most of the time people are surprised. It sounds like the Idaho killer had kind of a, a difficult background, some drug use, some social issues. It doesn't sound like anyone was super surprised on him. But I feel like a lot of like kind of the stereotypical Dateline in 2020 shows you see, it's like the married father of three who was living a secret life that nobody knew about. Um, and there is sort of that element of surprise. And you've heard that, like how Ted Bundy was so charming. And, you know, the famous ones were most of them relatively well liked, not all, but Certainly not to the point of, oh, I think this person is a serial killer. Yeah, we do have this kind of weird fascination with like thinking you know somebody, but do they have a darker secret? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if they're a serial killer, that's a pretty a pretty dark secret. Um. <laughs> yeah, the darkest one, yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't see serial killers as much anymore, probably because it's harder to get away with that kind of stuff. The bigger fear is your partner's. But, you know, if you every time you lay your head on your pillow next to your husband, think, oh, could he be a murderer? You're not going to have a fruitful relationship. <laughs> I told my husband, I have little notes uh, hidden around the house to say, if I if I am murdered, investigate my husband. And he doesn't know where these are. So if he ever does kill me, someone's going to come in and find these notes. And he's he's going to prison because I've got I've got evidence saying he's the one who killed me. So I, I'm, um, I did just want to get life insurance recently. And he was very concerned about that, about what plans I had. Like we have a kid, we got to get life insurance, but he knows, he knows from Dateline life insurance equals 
you're going to kill me in the next year. Uh, <laughs> and, and a lot of these kind of old school true crime books are like the husband murdering the wife and that. So it's possible people are learning a little bit about the kind of the intimate partner murders as well. What is in his background? But I don't know who dates someone and thinks, well, he checks these boxes in his background. He's got these little warning signs. Man, I think he's probably going to kill me someday. I better not go on a second date, right? I mean, that's kind of hard. Yeah, but I think also there's certain red flags. Okay, maybe it doesn't mean like he's a murderer, but just a lack of awareness that maybe shows red flags for other parts of like I went on a date a few months ago and before I got to the bar he texted me what do you want to drink and I was like I'll get it when I get there because I didn't want this guy getting my drink for me I never met him before and then he was upset with me for not letting him order my drink and I'm like I don't think you're a murderer but I think that's a red flag right that's a problem that you don't understand Oh, that's smart. I like it. Look at that. Did you and you I'm sure learned that from something you saw on the news or some sort of true crime thing about you got to protect what you're what you're drinking and how he handled that. You're right is a red flag. Right? Like, that's like some latent misogyny. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There's something going on there. It should have been if he understood, you explained it or he understood, like, oh, whoa, I hadn't thought about that. Makes sense, right? Instead, he's upset, right? Yeah. How could you think that I'm a murderer? I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe you are. Now you're getting all mad about it. (laughs) As he's taking his drugs he was going to put in there and, like, tossing them in the trash in anger. Right. You definitely had sex with somebody that was too drunk, for sure. (laughs) Like... There's something wrong with you. I want to ask you now. I don't know if this is a trope or not. I'm very in the comedy world and it's something you hear tossed around on stage a lot. Why do white women love true crime? Yeah, you know, that's something I've been asked a lot. And I don't have a legitimate scientific academic answer. But my guess is because that is who it is being written about and talked about the most. Right. Um women like the psychological context. So, you know, you hear about like what set the killer off or what's in his background. I mean, we're certainly hearing that with the Idaho murder case, right? People are pouring into his roommates and what he was like in high school and women are coming out that went on a date with him. Women like learning about that. And then also women like elements of kind of a, where they learn like a defense tactic or survival skill, like something where someone was kidnapped and escaped, like what happened there, right? Women are really drawn to that more than men are. And if you step back and look at it, those are all related to survival, right? How do I prevent myself from going out with the weirdo who's going to kill me? What are the rad flags to look for? What do I do if I'm thrown in the back of a trunk, you know, kick out the taillight? Um, Women compared to men really like that component of true crime. If you look at the news reports, the nightly news or whatever it may be, If you've got a pretty white 20-year-old girl that's out jogging and is kidnapped off the side of the road, that's going to make the news, right? But then we hear of cases where, oh, this black woman's been missing for two months and we're just now talking about it, right? It just doesn't get the attention. And so if it's less likely to apply to you personally, then I think you're more, you know, less likely to be interested in it. What do you think is the allure? Is it... I mean, like, we recently had the Gabby Petito case, and then we had those Idaho murders. Um, You know, there was some premeditation there, a a little bit almost like a teen slasher flick element in in the Idaho case. Do you think the mystery of it is the allure? Or, I mean, do you think it's a racial thing? Well, I mean, those cases are just... It's sort of two anomalies, right? So the Gabby Petito case, I think, really took off 
because of the internet sleuths and people trying to find her and all the the footage that was available, right? Because they were basically, you know, blogging their their life online and their their travels and stuff like that. And so there was something for people do, to do, something for people to follow along with. Um, the Idaho murders. Uh, also, we got we got four white victims and a white killer, right? But also just an absolute crazy case that. That doesn't happen very often, you know, a stranger breaking to a home full of people and and brutally killing four of them. I mean, I can understand why that gripped the public. There was a lot of mystery there. And then, of course, this whole criminology background and that whole bizarre, um, bizarre aspect to it. Uh, and, you know, if that case had happened and it had been four black victims and a black uh, perpetrator, would the African-American community be more interested in it? Um, maybe. I think that one sort of captivated everyone from all different racial backgrounds because it was just so, so bizarre and scary. But don't you think there is something a little bit voyeuristic, a little bit grotesque about it? I mean, to me, it it feels a little bit like like porn. Like it's almost like a fantasy you're putting yourself in, but it's a really fucked up fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's tricky. So, you know, some of it can be very tastefully done. Right. There are datelines and podcasts where the victim's families are a part of it. They're on there talking about it or like the wrongful convictions when you're trying to right a wrong. You know, that stuff is is all great. But does it appeal to something morbid? And it's like, why before I go to bed at night, do I want to read about someone being brutally murdered? Right. It, It is weird. And I think that there is something innate within all of us that that draws us to this. And I think it all relates back to survival. If we know who is getting killed and why, we can learn what to do to keep it from happening to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think the mystery element is compelling, like the the stalking and like the the premeditation, but also if the serial killer is hot, even better, right? Like if it's Jeffrey Dahmer, if it's Ted Bundy. (laughs) Well, that's a whole—that's a whole other factor right now. I, uh, you know, the Idaho murder getting getting letters. I, uh, what's his name? Alec Murdoch has been getting letters. I saw. I know who who wants him, right? Uh, that that's a whole a whole other story. <laughs> what is? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's feeling like, oh well, he's bad, but I'm special because he doesn't want to kill me. There's a lot to it. I actually wrote my dissertation on it. Um, women being attracted to famous killers. And, you know, it's it's a very complicated story. There's a lot of uh, questions of, you know, the woman's background. There's a lot of stereotypes. Some are true, some are not. There's sort of this fame element. Um, there's also everyday women who chose to write to convicts who aren't famous and develop relationships. Um, with them. I'm actually working on on a book on it, but it's in its very, very early stages. So I could talk for hours about that. So I think for a small subset of women, there is that attraction to the killer that is driving them to this true crime. I don't think that is for the majority of women, but I think it is for a small subset of women. The level of commitment some of y'all have to the genre is a little too intense for my liking. But hey, I'm a comic. I sometimes say horrible things to drunk strangers in hopes of making them laugh and cheer. We all got our issues. 
The lore of true crime is real though. So to get a better idea of what it's like to be drawn into these stories, I pulled out my old reporter Rolodex and I called up my friend Vanessa Paz. She's still working in the news down in San Diego, but back in 2018, she was taking a break from covering breaking stories and she found herself smack dab in the middle of a crazy one I just had to get her to talk to us about. Okay, so Vanessa, so you are living in Portland, you've just gotten out of the news industry and you start working at this culinary institute. Right, it seemed like a perfect opportunity to be the assistant director for marketing and communications because a lot of that tied in with the skill set that I already had. Shooting video, interviewing people, taking pictures for social media, it really was and looked like the perfect gig. Yeah, and there was somebody there on faculty that was like pretty popular among the students. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, so his name was Dan Brophy, and he had been there since the inception of this first start of the classes. I think it was, don't quote me on this, but I want to say it was like maybe the 1980s, 1990s. It had been open for a while. Um, but he was, uh, yeah, one of the favorites as far as the instructors went. Uh, he was very knowledgeable. He made the kids laugh, but also uh, was very informative. And I got a call. I remember this. I was at Costco, I got a call from another colleague who said, Dan Brophy's been shot and he's dead. And I stopped in my tracks and I said, get out of here. There's, what are you even talking about? It's kind of like just that, you know, first instant of shock where you just kind of don't believe what you're hearing. And then I headed to the school, huge police presence. And it was, that's exactly what happened. Dan Brophy had been shot and killed and no one knew what happened. Uh, there were no signs of a break-in at first. So we didn't think it was a robbery of any sort. And everyone was a little on edge around campus after that happened, especially the students, because it was actually a student who walked in and found him. You know, obviously just a nightmare of a scene, as you can imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, here's this guy who's like super beloved in the community. Who would want to shoot him? Like what happens in the aftermath? Yes. So we didn't know if there were any suspects. We didn't know if it was a random attack. We didn't know if it was a disgruntled student who came back for revenge because he was very witty and would, you know, he had humor, right? That's what made his class fun. And, you know, sometimes some students, it, you know, it didn't rub them the right way. So, so many questions about what happened to, to Dan Brophy. The group of instructors were actually very tight knit. They were more like a family than a faculty who received a paycheck. And so we made sure that Nancy, his wife, had all everything she needed because she was unemployed. She was an aspiring writer. Um, so we, the faculty every week sent her meal kits. We raised uh, money for her through um, banquets that we had each week. Myself and the entire staff just always wanted to make sure that she was okay. But, you know, we, we ended up having a memorial for Dan and there was about five, 600, maybe even a thousand people that showed up. There was just, just a massive turnout for this memorial for Dan and Nancy showed up front and center, did a speech you know, shed the tears, made everyone else in the audience cry. And it was just, you know, a very touching uh, moment to remember Dan and everyone, including Nancy, spoke about, you know, what they'll remember of Dan and how how much of an impact they made on on them. 
Wow. Okay. So here's Nancy. She's super involved in the community. What kind of stuff does she write? So she wrote uh, a book called How to Murder Your Husband, which is bizarre, right? Just a little ironic. She also had uh, wrote uh, another book by the title, I believe it was The Wrong Husband. So a lot of her uh, books, I would say, was under that kind of like romance slash thriller category. Uh, so it was just a little odd. And she was actually famous for the for that genre. So at no point are you thinking this woman who wrote this book about killing her husband killed her husband? Yes, that's accurate. No, no one ever in a million years, we were, you know, anything Nancy needed during that time. It was months before uh, investigators released any information about the murder. But as we know, it ended up being his wife. How did, how did investigators even <laughs> find that out? <laughs> so months later... I remember getting a call from someone again, a colleague. And, you know, it was one of those things where I just stopped in my tracks and they said Nancy was arrested for Dan Brophy's murder. And the talk among the school was this has to be a mistake. There's no way like Nancy was it. Oftentimes we would ask him, you know, are you going to go to this field trip this weekend? Are you going to be able to make it? And he'd be like, I have to ask the manager. And the manager was his wife and he just talked so highly of her. So as soon as we got the news, Nancy Brophy uh, reportedly shot and killed uh, Dan. We were just, we were like, there's got to be a mistake. There has to be a mistake. So why did she end up doing it? Was it like a life insurance type thing? A life insurance type thing. We heard that they were strapped for that. You know, she wanted kind of the life with, the big house, big cars, you know, and that was kind of the opposite of how Dan Brophy lived and his beliefs. He was very minimal. He was very simplistic. And I believe it's, you know, that she just wanted, you know, she wanted a different life and that's how she was going to get it. And what's funny is I remember, I remember specifically the day or a week after he was murdered. I remember her walking into our HR office and she walked out. And of course, you know, there's whispers like, what was Nancy doing here? And and the HR gal said she was trying to claim life insurance. And it was in one year, out the other. We didn't think anything of it. And then months later, when she was arrested, uh, suspected of his murder, it just all started clicking, which is just, it was wild. The smoking gun was a camera that caught her van driving by the Institute from a Starbucks camera. So she had told investigators that she was nowhere near the scene at the time of the murder. And when they went back and checked the surveillance cameras, it was a clear image of Nancy in her van driving right past the culinary school right when the murder happened. Wow. And, you know, she didn't drop him off because he had his truck there. Um, he drove his truck. He stocked it up with all the goods for the course that day. And she clearly went out of her way and did, you know, did what she did. Wow. I was sloppy about it, too. How are you going to drive your own car yeah. to the murder scene? Exactly. I mean, especially in a world where, you know, you're just on camera in every corner. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That is fucking insane. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But she was found guilty. And, you know, we were all very happy that that Dan Brophy sad sadly he's not with us but that you know he was 
given justice. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, and now we were just Googling that there might be like a movie that's either been made or going to be made about it. How does that make you feel? Like you knew this guy, you worked with this guy, you love this guy. How does it make you feel that people are like making content about what happened to him? It doesn't surprise me. It's a wild story. It's just a wild story. I mean, had I not been involved and I read about it, it would have easily, you know, pulled me into either reading about it, reading the reading a book about it, seeing a doc about it, and even now watching a Lifetime movie about it. So um, it doesn't shock me that this story made headlines across the nation. Wouldn't be surprised if people even around the globe heard about it because not every day do you hear about a true crime novelist actually committing a crime. Someone who wrote a book surrounding how to murder your husband, actually murdering their husband and going out of going about it in a way that was just so kind of manipulative because she showed up at the, at the memorial. She spoke her, you know, she, spoke to everyone, all of his students and his family and his colleagues about how great of a person dad was. And she accepted gifts and, you know, donations from the community who were supporting and rallying behind her because they thought she was also a victim in this case, which we found out really quickly she was not at all. Wow. What a bitch. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> 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 you think you know people. Big thanks to my friend Vanessa Paz for joining us on the podcast and sharing that story with us. Now back to Amanda Vickery for more true crime at its best. I did actually see this documentary. I think it was British and it was about a guy, not Jack the Ripper. It was somebody after Jack the Ripper that was very similar. And I remember watching that documentary and thinking, oh, they did true crime right. Because there was nothing like glorifying him at all. The whole documentary was about how originally this guy started killing sex workers and prostitutes. Um, and then he moved on to just like the general public and killing young young girls of all walks of life. And that was when it finally started becoming a problem for the community and the police started paying attention to it. But when like prostitutes were coming forward and being like, hey, I was beaten by this guy and he tried to murder me, they completely ignored it. And so I feel like um, a lot of true crime actually is about like police not doing their job, (laughs) right? Like police just being getting bamboozled or having a bias. And I think this is me theorizing and you, you tell me what you think about it. I think in like black communities or Latino communities, it's like, yeah, we know we know cops aren't doing their job. (laughs) right and then white communities are like still shocked by it that is a really interesting point and that the story you were telling almost exactly sounded like the long island serial case serial killer case it's in the news these days where the guy rex i forget his last name was just just arrested after 10 years and there is a lot of focus on the police not doing their job because they had all the clues right same with the delphi indiana the two girls who were killed. Um, they were walking on the, the bridge, the trail, and the one had taken a video of the man coming towards her. They had all the clues at the beginning to arrest the guy. And it was just, the report was just lost, right? It sounds like until someone else came in and took a look at the case. And so there has been a lot of focus on, on that lately. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's twofold because hindsight's always twenty twenty. You look back and you're like, well, obviously that was the person out of the stack of 500 you had because of this. How did you miss this? Right. So I think sometimes the detectives might get a bad rap. Sometimes do they totally mess up? Yes. And in cases of wrongful convictions, are they really messing up? Um, yeah, for sure. And 
I, I, I think you may be onto something there with the black community. You know, you think about the things you see on the internet these days where someone's being arrested and the police are either beating them up or like throwing drugs in the back of the car. Think of what had to happen before cameras, you know, cell phone cameras and body cams existed, right? And the black community has known for a long time that stuff like this can happen where the white community, I'm sure, is not experiencing it in anywhere near the same rate. And so, yeah, maybe when these cases are solved and like, oh, the police messed up, we white people are like, whoa, what? And they're just, and the black community's like, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think that maybe true crime is helping us in that sense, like helping us learn that, hey, sometimes the authorities that you rely on get it wrong. Like maybe the community does need to get more involved. Maybe we do need Internet. Service. Maybe <laughs> we need to believe moving more. Like, are, are we learning these things through true crime? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> I think it is definitely exposing people to um, the flaws in our justice system and the the subtle ways that things go wrong. Not as obvious as the police saying, OK, I have these these drugs and I'm throwing it in the back of the car as I arrest this person. Right. But the manipulation of of witnesses, you know, the the building a case against someone with jailhouse snitches and getting a coerced confession out of someone, you know, all the kind of subtle things that can come together and be wrongdoing. And I think those are really fascinating because it's, it's harder to look at and understand. If you see a video of a cop throwing, planting drugs on someone, that's it. But you see someone that's in prison for 20 years and people testified against him and someone picked him out of a deliberately, you know, manipulate the situation. Right. You were talking about um, internet sleuths and you had a, a very strong reaction to that. Can you talk <laughs> to me more about that? <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like every article I write about internet sleuths is about kind of how, I don't know, I, I don't want to say crazy they are, but I guess the meddling that can cause problems, right? Um, so there's famous, the famous instance on, on Reddit is uh, years ago, the Reddit community, and I love Reddit, I'm on Reddit every day, thought they had identified the Boston bomber. This was before we knew who it was. And they posted some guy's picture and it was all over the internet and they were wrong. And so, you know, this person's life is ruined. And so that's sort of like the hallmark, hallmark example of internet sleuths gone wrong. But, you know, if someone is, uh, I don't know, investigating a case, let's say even the Idaho killer case, and, you know, they fly out there and they show up and they're interviewing neighbors and things like that, that could legitimately be messing up the police investigation, right? If you're getting interviewed by some random person off the street or, you know, they're, they're going to houses. I think a problem can be um, people being harassed on the internet. You know, someone thinks they solved a case. They think they know who did it, you know, talking to, the, to people online, harassing the victims. And then there's also though, there's, there's good communities where it's just people bonded together who want to talk about them involved. Um, and there's been people who have helped identify, um, you know, John Doe's that have been found, you know, uh, there's directories of this, of the, you know, a body has been found. Here's the statistics. We don't know who it is. And there's been times that internet sleuths have matched that up with other databases and people gone missing and put the pieces together and figured out who this nameless body is. And that's amazing. We have, we have such basic tenets of how to be safe, right? Don't leave your drink unattended. Walk with your keys in your hand when you're going to your car, walk on where the street lights are. You know, those are basic common knowledge of, of how to stay safe as a woman on the street. Um, with all this true crime, are we actually safer? Are those, are, 
are we actually learning? Has that ever actually protected anybody? Or are we actually more in danger because maybe criminals are learning how to get away with stuff more? Like, <laughs> like what's the truth there? You know, it's funny. I actually did a study on that too. So a couple different things. Are people getting smarter about protecting themselves? I think so. Though I think it's easy to forget that most of the time who we need to protect ourselves for are for our, our intimate partners or our, our loved ones, right? And we're probably not getting smarter about that. Locking the door isn't going to keep my husband from killing me, right? So I think we're getting smarter about preventing um, stranger abductions and things like that. Are the criminals getting smarter? Yes, absolutely. And so I have read news reports where, uh, you know, someone killed someone and then they went back to the crime a couple, uh, you know, hours later be to clean up their DNA because they saw it on, you know, CSI that they needed to do that or something. Um, and so I did a study where I had a bunch of college students uh, come into my lab and I asked them to write for 20 minutes. I said, imagine you're back home over winter break. And you need to break into a neighbor's house without getting caught and steal some stuff. How do you do it? I wanted to ask, how would you murder someone? But I wasn't sure that we'd get by the IRB. That seemed a little unethical. So I said, how are you going to you know, break in? And then I also asked them what TV shows they watched on a regular basis. Okay, first of all, there are a lot of really uh, smart criminals in our university system. I think there were things I read in those college students' reports that were you know, amazing. I'm going to go buy a different pair of sho size shoes and wear that so they won't be able to match up the footprints, um, just things you would have never thought about. And so then I looked to see how aware are these students of these things that could catch them, like hair falling out, you know, like some students are like, I'm going to wear a hat to make sure I don't leave any hair behind. The obvious, the, the gloves to cover up the fingerprints. Um, you know, students would th say things about driving a different car and not leaving soil samples. And anyway, the take home message, what I found is that the kids who watched a lot of shows like CSI, like these crime shows and were into them, were more likely to mention this forensic stuff and be smarter about how to not get caught and say things like, I'm going to, you know, wear something over my hair so I don't leave it behind or trying to plant, you know, false evidence, uh, you know, to implicate someone else or something like that. So these shows are teaching people how criminals get caught and they're getting smarter about what not to leave behind. Wow. <laughs> uh, I I appreciate that you didn't ask your students to plan a murder. Yeah, I, I really wanted to. And with what they came up with for breaking into a house, I can't imagine what they would have come up with for killing people. I mean, there were some smart, there were some clever kids in there that are, they're probably breaking into someone's house right now. I don't know. Pretty, <laughs> it seems like they're pretty good at it. Maybe some had done it before. I don't know. Well, I do often wonder that, like with movies and TV, where there's like a very gruesome, very meticulous murder. I'm like, somebody sat down and wrote this down. Like they thought about this. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Like who's sitting there fantasizing about this and, and, and coming up with it? But yeah, I mean, because before the OJ trial, none of us knew about DNA, right? We know DNA gets left behind now. You know, we know that hair can identify us. We know about touch DNA, that just touching something, right? I'm guessing people are a lot more careful to wear gloves when committing crimes than they were 20 years ago. And now we know about, especially with the Idaho case, we know about cell phone tracking now. We know about cameras. There's cameras everywhere, the ring cameras. You know, people were critical of him. Why did he drive his own car to commit a murder? Well, like, where else? What are you going to do? I mean, if you steal a car, you could get caught stealing the car, right? You know, what helped him get caught was the fact that everywhere has cameras these days. And they were able to get his car basically kind of coming coming and going from, from the scene. And so 
I don't know what you do about that. Maybe if you're going to kill someone, maybe walk, walk, don't take the main roads. Uh, but, but people are learning and people know now. I mean, I've read cases where people, you know, they know to leave their cell phone at home if they're going to go commit a murder because they can track what cell phone towers you're pinging off of. Right. You leave your phone at home. You don't take it with you. People didn't know that. Time yeah. Ago. Yeah. I definitely learned that through cereal. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so Amanda, uh, we've mentioned a lot throughout this conversation, good true crime versus bad true crime. So like, what's the difference between those two things? And is there a difference between what's good for morality versus what's good for entertainment? I think there is a difference between true crime that serves perhaps a greater moral purpose and true crime that is just for entertainment. And so I think that what makes a true, true, good true crime from sort of a moral perspective would be if it has some sort of educational component. Are you learning something, whether it's about the justice system or trying to help solve an unsolved case, something legitimate you are taking from it? And also, I think good moral true crime is supported, supported by the family members or the friends or the loved ones of the people involved. Now, good true crime in terms of what is entertaining, I think differs probably for a lot of people. Um, I think good true entertainment true crime is mysterious in some way. There is something we, you're putting together the clues, you're trying to solve the crime. We don't know who did it or we do, but it's not revealed to the end of the two hour dateline show who actually is the culprit, right? And I think Good, entertaining true crime is also heart-wrenching. We want to maybe feel something for the victims. Or if, you know, a child is killed or a young, innocent teenager or something, I think it makes it more gripping to us than, as sad as it is to say, if an adult male were killed. And I think that's why, for whatever reason, you know, we do see true crime focused more on women victims and children and things like that. For whatever reason, it tugs at our heartstrings more. Well, there you have it. Next time you go to gorge yourself on the never-ending smorgasbord of stabbings and strangulations, try to avoid the grossest options. You might just end up regretting them later. Thanks for the great advice, Dr. Vickery. It's really useful to know how to spot the bad from the good and be critical of your own taste. But you know, listening to one shitty podcast won't have that big of an impact on our collective psyche. One consumer does not an economy make. Corporate choice, that's where things get really sticky. When companies make bad choices, they can risk billions, all because they let an intern post something cringe. So next time, we're asking marketing guru Katie Martell why so many companies keep sticking their colossal feet in their mouths. Cereal is a commodity. Marketing is the thing that makes a consumer go, I will pick you and I will pay more. And so companies have to tap into whatever will set them apart or make them trusted. I think that's the kind of reason companies do this. And what ends up happening now is you get brands going, oh, well, we have to do something. It's Pride Month. Oh, we have to do something. It's Black Lives Matter season. June of 2020 was like every brand and their mom had this like black statement that, you know, on Twitter that was like, you know, rip to George Floyd. And we stand with, you know, black Americans and police brutality must end. Like there was this whole performative game where it was like, who could get their statement out fast enough? And they all looked the same. They all literally looked identical. New episodes come out every other Thursday. Giving us a rating and a review is a huge help and make sure other people can find the show. Indecent is a production of Next Chapter Podcast. Go to ncpodcast.com to learn more. If you have something you want us to talk about, a guest you want to recommend, or you know of a truly foolproof way to get rid of a body, shoot us an email at indecentthepod at gmail.com. 
or hit us up on social media at IndecentKiki and follow me at It's Kiki Anderson. My producers are Max Wolfson and Pete Musto, and our executive producer is Jeremiah Tittle. I'm Kiki Anderson, and this has been Indecent, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.